Well, if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to take them out uh, with me and open them up to the book of Philippians, a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. Um, We're our second week into our Advent-themed series, Simply Christmas. Uh, What... um, What would it look like if Christmas looked a lot more like Jesus? It's really what we're trying to explore over these few weeks as we journey through the Sundays leading up to um, our celebration of his arrival on December, well, we're gonna celebrate it on December 23rd, if that's okay with you. Um, I've been looking at Christmas cards as they have started to arrive in the mail, and I always like to see the pictures that are that are on the front of them. Uh, these days, you you know, you can go to Costco and you can get your family picture put on a card. You can go pretty much any printing company will do that for you. So, some of the cards that are around our house have your smiling faces on them. Some of them have your pets on the front of the card. Uh, others choose a more um, subtle, uh, serene peaceful-looking Christmas. Uh, some of you uh, have more of a nostalgic-looking card. I, I, I have a few pictures of them. Glenn, the, the first one is a, it's kind of a Norman Rockwell Christmas. Have you seen, seen this one? You notice how everybody's kind of smiling, these beautiful people and all the packages, and of course the youngest one is bellering out to grandma. Uh, and then, so that's, a, that's kind of a nostalgic-looking picture. Then the next one is, there's the Thomas Kincaid. Isn't that beautiful, peaceful, and serene? You know, you, you know, if you look at a lot of Thomas Kincaid and other pictures like this, there's always like a church in it, kind of making a cameo appearance. And so we have the church in the back and the lights just flooding out of that beautiful home. And they're it's hard to see in the shadows, but they're, they're all holding packages. It's like the perfect Christmas. Now, the white stuff on the ground is called snow, but <laughs> the next one, I, I found one that looks maybe a little more apropos to Western Washington. <laughs> so you remove the snow and you add that wet look. There you go. So thank, thanks, Glenn. But I was thinking that our Christmas cards don't always match up with the reality of life. You notice that? I I don't know about you, but I've been in some winter scenes like that one that were seemingly very peaceful and serene, but uh, it's not always just like that. I've had some moments where it felt like the one with the Norman Rockwell with that, you know, that beautiful family with lots of packages. I've had some Christmases that maybe have felt a little bit like that, but certainly not all of them. And I, and I would go as far as to say is that's not everybody's experience of, of Christmas. Uh, there's, a, there's a disconnect that we have between uh, the pictures that we see on Christmas cards and real life. I think Christmas cards, um, the ones that we put out there, the ones that we choose to represent our family in the season, they're, they're really the, the emotion 
They're the, the sentiment that we want to experience ourselves. They're, they're the sentiment that we want to send, certainly, to other people. But while I like Christmas cards and they're beautiful, I think, I think they're a bit disingenuous to the black and blue reality that a lot of us face in, in everyday life. Uh, I got a call Tuesday. It's my daughter, Nicole. She, this is her first year teaching math down in Idaho. And she sounded a little bit flustered. She said, hey, Dad, do you got a second to talk? And I said, certainly. It was one of those, it was, you know, it's a teacher first. I, I had two guys break out in a fight in my math class. I don't know about you. I don't know what you fight over in math class. <laughs> <laughs> the square root of that is not, you know, I don't know what they're fighting about. Probably uh, something else that just flowed into the classroom, but she was a little bit shaking. She hadn't, she's like, I, I was at my desk and they were working on assignments and all of a sudden it sounded like somebody kicked the desk over and, you know, maybe, you know, I thought maybe somebody was just screwing around in class and over went the desk and she's, I, I looked over and there were these two guys and they were, they were, it looked like they were fighting and, and it took me a second and I thought, they are fighting. And then, you know, she went into the mode of what they've, trained the teachers to do, but, you know, that's not what she was expecting. I got a message. I think it was Wednesday. A dear brother in Christ down at our sister church in El Salvador was tragically murdered. Out collecting things to support his family and sense, senselessly just gunned down. And that church is hurting. I don't think that's the image that they had on the Christmas card that they would send out. You click on the news, there's human atrocities in Yemen and Myanmar and all over the rest of the world. These are the things that... Christmas cards just don't picture that side of our reality. Christmas cards picture something more peaceful and serene and joyous. It was a couple of years ago about this time of year, mid-December, my phone rang. It was a friend of mine. And he said, Dave, I, I'm in trouble. And I said, what's, what's going on? And he's like, I'd, I just got laid off. What am I, I going to do? Why? Why this time of year? It's the only income that our family has. How am I going to support my wife and kids? How am I going to tell my wife when I get home? You feel a little bit inadequate to address something like that when it happens. All, all that I could do was, was pray with my friend and offer a little bit of encouragement. But there's something strangely beautiful about that conversation that I remember was that he was calm, and he had this quiet confidence that everything was going to be okay, that God would be faithful and somehow, some way, care for he and, and his family. Uh, our culture is a bit at odds with Advent. Our 
culture pushes the Christmas card version of Christmas on us. We're, we're told, we sing, we listen to Christmas carols, have a holly jolly Christmas, you know, it's the most wonderful time of the year, right? The truth is, I don't think most people have a Norman Rockwell Christmas. Or maybe I should update the language a little bit because Norman Rockwell was a little bit last century, right? So I, I don't think most people experience a Pinterest Christmas <laughs> or an Instagram Christmas. I mean, if you try some of those crafts that they post on Pinterest and Instagram, does yours ever look like the picture? Some of you can actually say, yes, I know you. But most of us, regular folk, well, I didn't bring any pictures of, of that. If you click on the news, if you scroll through your Facebook feed or other news source online, you will quickly be reminded of wars and rumors of wars and murder and homelessness and joblessness and broken families and poverty and hunger and sickness. And, and the world wants us to shove all of those things to the side during this time of the year. Actually, most times of the year. Push them all to the side, cover them up so that we can have the nostalgic kind of a Christmas. Now, I don't want to be a downer. You're probably saying, oh, man, I came to church to be encouraged today. Thank you very much for all of that. Christmas is probably my very favorite season, other than jelly bean season, <laughs> which begins February 15th, by the way. Think about it. You'll figure that one out. <clears throat> I love the surprises. I love the lights. I love the carols. I love the festivities. I love the decorations, all of that. But I think we need to ask ourselves more often, what if Christmas looked a lot more like Jesus? Yeah. I think in an effort to celebrate our Savior, I think we've begun to celebrate ourselves. Um, in the name of Jesus, we've turned our expressions of gratitude and love and joy and peace into a lot of consumerism and gluttony. So what if we stripped what if we stripped everything that's masking the true meaning of Christmas away? What if we stripped everything off that's covering up Jesus? Yes, Jesus is the reason for the season. You see that. But if you pay attention to our culture, it's at odds with Advent and Jesus kind of gets lost in all the other stuff that we tend to focus on. I think if, if we removed all that stuff that we would find that our initial, wow, Dave, you, you said, what if we bought one less present or scheduled one less activity like we were watching in that video? If we started to strip away the, the things that we like about Christmas, what if that family wasn't holding any gifts? As soon as we get by that, oh, I can't imagine Christmas without whatever you want to fill in the blank. I think that we would find that Jesus would actually be enough. We would, we would find that in Jesus, we would 
we would have everything that I think we're looking for. The, the passage of Scripture that I've chosen to walk through during Advent is found in this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. It's in chapter 4, the verses that I want to look at specifically today. Talk about peace. Simply peace is the title of, of the message. This is what Paul says, starting in verse 5. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Those are, that's a loaded three verses right there. Paul says a lot in these short little sayings, particularly about peace here. Now, if you think about the time of year that we're in, we're celebrating or getting ready to celebrate the birth of, of Jesus in Bethlehem. If you think about the time and place, the context into which Jesus was born, it was, it was really anything but peaceful. Things were going relatively well for the country as a whole, but they were occupied by Roman forces who liked to flex their muscle and push people around. They were um, abusive and oppressive and were... Caesar was interested in counting all of the people so he could tax them. There's anything but peace. If you think about the world that Paul wrote this letter into, the years of, the early years of, of the church, the, the world was anything but peaceful for those Christians, those first Christians. They were um, refused and, and rejected, uh, overlooked and persecuted. Paul is writing this particular letter from a jail cell and he's under, uh, he, he's under arrest and he's going to lose his life. It was anything but peace. And yet Paul says, don't be anxious about anything. Don't, don't worry about a thing. I think Paul knows that our worries and our fears are two of the main things in our lives that tend to steal our peace. It's like Paul was saying, worry is kind of like a good rocking chair. It'll give you something to do, but it's not going to take you anywhere. He knows that if we dwell on our worries and our fears, that we won't have any peace in our life. He says, get rid of them. 
Our, our word worry comes from an old German word that means to choke, to strangle. And so if you think about that imagery and worry, if you wallow in worry, it, you're going to choke yourself out. And that's not peaceful. For some of you, I know, I know you're facing some big things in life that, that create lots of pressure. For some of you, it's a bunch of little things. The schedules of the season, kids in school, all sorts of things. Just the, the regular stuff of life that just tends to add up and wear us down. That They begin to feel like a weight. For some of you, it's just the noise of, of the world in which we live with everything that's going on and the discord and the strife. Some of you, it's turmoil at work. Some of you, it's problems at home. Paul says, do not worry about anything. He, he's not, well, I want to be clear, he's not encouraging some pie-in-the-sky, Pollyanna kind of a faith here. What he's saying is when things are at their worst, the peace of God will come into our lives, and it's a peace that passes any of our understanding. And then it will, did you, did you notice the phrase there? And he said, and it will guard your hearts. The, the, the word there for guard means to stand sentry watch. So when the peace of God is on duty, you don't have to be scanning all of your horizons looking for new threats. The peace of God will stand sentry watch over your hearts. Do not worry about anything, says Paul, but in every situation, pray. Pray. Talk to God. Peace in our lives, in Paul's words right here, peace in our lives begins with our communication with God. Our, our peace comes from the ones that we are connected with. In verse 5, he says, The Lord, the Lord is near. That's, somebody should have said amen. The Lord is near. Think about that. He's not just talking to a church a couple thousand years ago. He's talking to you and me. He says the Lord is near. That phrase is why this is an Advent text. Because each year when we come to this season... We celebrate once again that the Lord is near. See, the peace that God brings us, it's not, a base, it's not based on logic. It's based on a relationship with Jesus. It's not based on the environment around you, but it's, it's based on the one who walks with you. The Lord is near. 
So the news can be troubling sometimes, I understand. You can be distracted by life. It happens to all of us. But the promise is that you can find peace in Christ. And there are three expressions of peace that I think would be good for us to, to at least mention. There's, through Christ we can have peace with God. Through Christ we can have peace within, within ourselves. And through Christ we can have peace with others. Now I don't know where you, I don't know where you go looking for peace. Uh, I went looking for peace on Amazon.com yesterday. There are over 90,000 titles of books that have something to do with finding peace. 90,000. Most of them fall into the self-help category, so they're books that are going to give you like 75 ways for you to achieve perfect peace in your life. When I thought about that for about three seconds, I, I could stand up here and I could preach a sermon that gives you a whole long list of things for you to do to achieve peace in your life, but I have, I suspect that that would only you would receive that as just another weight. Just another thing that I have to do. I'm trying to get to peace over here, and you just laid a whole bunch of stuff that I need to do so I can achieve peace. And the only way that we can achieve the peace that Paul is talking about here, it's in one word, and it's Jesus. We need to be in relationship with Jesus, and we'll find that peace. So, peace with God. In Paul's letters, if you've spent any time reading your Bibles, in all 13 of Paul's letters, he uses a phrase, um, grace and peace. Have you noticed? You've heard that before. I signed emails occasionally, grace and peace, or letters, grace and peace. He never switches those words around. He never says peace and grace. And I was thinking about that. Why, why doesn't he just switch the order once in a while, grace and peace? And I think he's making a point. I think that he is saying you can't have peace in your life until you have experienced the grace of God through his salvation. Grace comes before peace, grace and peace. And Jesus is the one, when we enter into relationship with him, the one who will provide God's grace to us and bring us peace. See, Romans 5.1, another letter that Paul wrote, he says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, even though, even though we are sinners, and separated from God, which Paul lays out for us, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Despite the fact that we are born in sin and are alienated from God, in fact, we are in open rebellion against him as sinners, he loved us enough to send his son Jesus to die on the cross so that our sins can be forgiven. The Lord the Lord is near. 
Jesus came so that we can be at peace with God, that we, that we can experience his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness, and the relationship that we fractured can, can be restored. The passage that Trent read earlier from Isaiah said that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And the, the peace that we're talking about goes a whole lot deeper than just freedom from conflict uh, or the elimination of noise in our life. If you look up in the dictionary, the, the typical definitions that you'll find when you look up the word peace are you know, just freedom from conflict. You're not at war. You're not in hostility with anybody. And the, another, another definition of peace would be that you're free from the noise of life. So I guess that's out for parents of young kids, I understand. But <clears throat> that's not the kind of peace that we're talking about. We're, we're going to a deeper level of peace here, which um, the peace of God, um, the peace that God will bring you grows this tranquility, this confidence in your heart that originates from understanding that your life is truly in the hands of a God who loves you. You, you can experience in God's peace an inner, an inner quiet despite all of the troubles that you might be facing. In Luke, when he talks about Jesus' arrival, his birth, in Luke chapter 2, verse 14, when, when Jesus' birth was announced to the shepherds that were out in the fields, says, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Through Jesus Christ, you can be at peace with God. But you can also be at peace with, within yourself. When... When Jesus was preparing his disciples for his, um, for his death, I think that he knew that they were getting a little nervous. They sensed something in Jesus that, you know, this is, he keeps talking about him going and dying. Well, that makes us a, a little bit afraid he kept talking about a resurrection, but they focused on the death part of it. And before he, before he departs, before he makes his way to the cross, in John 14, he says, I'll not leave you as orphans. I, I, I won't leave you all by yourself. I'll send the Holy Spirit. I'll send the comforter to you. My peace I leave with you. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. These were Jesus' final instructions to his disciples. As he's getting ready to make his way to the cross and die, he needs to reassure them that things are going to be okay and that... When everything breaks loose, when it feels like the chaos and the evil of the world are winning, don't be afraid. 
I'm leaving my peace with you. See, if you're here this morning and you feel like the weight of your life right now is just too much to bear, let me tell you that the peace that Jesus offered to his disciples is a peace that he offers to each one of us. In John 16, just a couple chapters later, Jesus says that we're going to have trouble in this world, but he tells us to take heart because he has already overcome the world. Nothing that we're facing is too big for Jesus to handle. There's nothing that you're facing right now that Jesus can't give you a peace from within. So when he says, I give you my peace, it is I will give you peace in the middle of all the stressful times and trouble so that you can deal with it. Colossians 3.15 says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And I think sometimes that's a challenge for us. Because we're talking about the peace of Christ as something that's going to be deep within us that gives this calm sense of confidence to navigate through the struggles of life. But the struggles of life are loud and obnoxious and they're in our face. And we sense them. But, despite how challenging this might be, despite the fact that sometimes, maybe you're different than I am, sometimes I think that maybe when we're in the midst of our struggles that we feel like we may be able to navigate or solve the problem better than God would. So we go out looking for peace. Maybe it's in a book. Maybe it's somewhere else. And we we turn to solutions that aren't God-driven solutions. Sometimes I, th- I think when we, we lean that direction, we're, we're, we're exacerbating the problem, the emotions that we're facing. When, when Jesus is my peace, I leave with you. The peace that he leaves is something that, is, that ought to uh, bolster and nurture and grow our faith in him. See, when you listen to the Holy Spirit, he'll guide you. He will give you direction. And he leads us into paths of peace. So we can walk with the Holy Spirit's guidance. I like how Isaiah writes about it. He says, if only you would pay attention to my commands, your peace would be like a river. Which suggests to me that what Paul says is true when he says that we ought to be in prayer, the spirit of thanksgiving, that our connection with God that we foster through prayer 
is how we will hear the voice of God, how we will sense the Holy Spirit leading us in the midst of all our storms. And when we listen to God and we put it into practice in our lives, Isaiah says peace will flow from us like a river. Well, we can also have peace with, with others. Uh, if we have peace with God, uh, we can begin to ha- experience peace within ourselves. And, and when we have those two things, then we're kind of uh, poised and ready to begin to experience peace with other people. Mother Teresa, she quietly, with her life, but also with her words, reminded us that if, if we have no peace, it is because we have forgotten that we belong to each other. It's quite profound. If we have no peace, it is because we have forgotten that we belong to each other. See, we live in a world where it seems like we've forgotten that we belong to each other. There's walls of division everywhere. We're in a place right now where if you hold differing opinions, you're not supposed to like each other anymore. You're supposed to be sworn enemies. I found it very refreshing watching some of the coverage of George Bush's funeral this week. It truly seemed like people on opposite sides of the aisle remembered that we belonged to one another. And not only did they remember it, but they acted like it. And that was really refreshing. As a a beacon of hope that maybe something can still be done. Well, Nelson Mandela, I was reading a little bit, and he said, no one is born hating another person because of the color of his skin or his background or his religion. People must learn to hate. And if they can learn to hate, they can be taught to love. For love comes more naturally to the human heart than its opposite. Do you know why that's true? That's, tr- that's a true statement because each and every one of us is made in the image of God. Each and every one of us is made in God's image. And so, deep down in all of us, there is a yearning to bring the good things of God to bear in our own lives. Love, joy, peace. They call, we call them the fruit of the Spirit. Why? Because they're all written into our DNA and we have learned something other than that. And when we set aside our sinful nature, when we give that up, as Paul would say, when we eradicate that, when we kill it off and we focus on the, the qualities of God that are written into our hearts, we can experience peace in our lives. We yearn for it. I don't know anybody who would say they don't want peace in their life, but it's so elusive. It's often just kind of shoved to the side when sin brings out the combative chaos and jealousy and rage and selfish ambition and dissension and hatred. All of those things that the Apostle Paul tells us to get rid of 
Paul says in Galatians 5, he says, love your neighbor as yourself. You've, you've probably heard that one before. It's a quote of Jesus. <laughs> if you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. And he goes on from that passage to tell us about growing the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, all of those things. When, when Jesus walked around and taught people, he gave a sermon. It was called the Sermon on the Mount. And in Matthew chapter 5, he said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. I love how Eugene Peterson writes about this. He translates this beatitude, or he talks about it with these words. He says, You're blessed when you can show people how to cooperate instead of compete or fight. Jesus does not say, blessed are those who have peace. Jesus does not say, blessed are those who prefer peace or love peace or wish for peace. He did not bless those who dreamed of peace or enjoyed the benefits of peace. He's not really even blessing people who are peaceful. He says, blessed are those who are doers of peace. We can talk about it all we want, but until we take steps of being peacemakers, being peace doers, that, that, that's the end game of all of this. When we experience the peace of God in our life through Christ, when we experience that peace within ourselves because the Lord is near and, and, and we can experience that in Jesus Christ, then we can begin to be doers of peace out in our world. It's not easy. I'll give you that. It's actually quite hard work. I was, I was reading a little bit this week, and I was reminded of, of one of my favorite Christmas carols. Um, so I dug, out my, I dug out my old hymnal. And I understand if you, if you walk through life if you look out your window, if you look up from your office cubicle. I understand when you look at the news or the state that your family is in right now. I examine your own life. I understand if you feel like there's anything but peace. I just want to say you're, you're not alone. You're not alone. And I just want to remind you that the Lord is near, and he's the one who can bring you true peace. The, it's, it's a hymn in our, in our book. It's called, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. You know that Christmas carol? It was a almost word-for-word -word adaption from a poem that Henry Wadsworth Longfellow wrote back on Christmas Day in 1863 called Christmas Bells. There's an article in this month's Christianity Today that brings this particular song uh, to light, and the, and the author suggests that this, um, she called it the carol for the despairing, uh, even though it was written during the days of the Civil War, she was making the case for it. It's one of the songs, maybe more than any others, that still rings very true today. 
And I tend to agree with what she had to say. Well, Longfellow, at the time, he was a 57-year-old widow of six children. And he penned the song as he heard the Christmas bells ring out in his town on that Christmas day in 1863. The, the bells were bright and crisp, and they were singing out happy melodies about peace on earth. But in his own world, there seemed to be anything but peace. His wife had tragically died in a fire. His oldest son, who he had forbidden joining the military, ran away, joined the Union troops. Word came back, his oldest boy was shot came within an inch of being paralyzed for life. He, he recovered, thankfully, but his life was changed in that moment. Longfellow looked out at a country that was absolutely ripped in two, bloodshed. Neighbors whose sons weren't going to ever come back from the war. He looked out. He looked at his own experience. He looked at the world. And the song that was ringing out, it's kind of like the Christmas cards we're talking about. The songs rang out these happy melodies of peace on earth, but the experience of his own life, he said that there was, a, there was just a discord. There's a dissonance between what I was hearing and what I was experiencing in life. There's, the carol was at odds with the world in which I lived. And so he wrote this poem to capture the feeling that he was experiencing in this moment. It starts off, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet, the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And thought how, as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Till ringing, singing on its way, the world revolved from night to day, a voice, a chime, a chant sublime of peace on earth, goodwill to men. He starts off talking about the happy melodies. Then there's two verses that focus on what was going on in the Civil War. And so the cannon thundered in the south, and with the sound, the carols drowned out the sound of peace on earth, goodwill to men. It was as, it was as if an earthquake rent the heartstones of a continent, and made forlorn the households born of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And he gets to the low point of the poem. And in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong 
and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill towards men. You know, if, if the poem ended right here, we would have no hope. We would have no expectation of anything but evil and hate winning the day. And sometimes it feels that way. But there's another verse. And he brings the gospel to bear. He reminds us that the Lord is near. And in Christ we can have a a settledness of confident hope, even in the midst of bleak despair. And this is what he wrote. He says, Then pealed the bells, more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor does he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with with peace on earth, goodwill to men. I'm really glad that he gave us that last verse. God does not sleep. He is awake, and God is coming. The Lord, the Prince of Peace, is near. What we read about in in Revelation, chapter 21, verse 4, When the Lord returns, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. See, this kingdom that we're talking about is not some far-off reality that we have to wait for. When Jesus walked around proclaiming the gospel message when he was alive and here on earth, he said, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Let there be peace on earth and let it begin with me. May peace be born in all of us today. The people of God said, amen.